Everybody's a content producer now, right? Influencers of all sorts. There are a lot of opinions out there. There are a lot of papers written on nothing but just I think, or my chatbot told me, or I did a Google search, or I read an article. And I think the difference with the IBV is really that data. We're seeing that a typical executive only consumes thought leadership from five organizations. If they are trusted, the likelihood that they're going to be one of those five organizations increases by more than 100%. The proprietary data that we invest in and the facts that we rely upon and the rigorous analysis that we conduct, that is part of building that trust. We are honored to have with us two senior leaders at the IBM Institute for Business Value, or IBV, who play a vital role in bringing these prestigious studies to life. Let me first introduce Cindy Anderson, IBV's global CMO. In this role, Cindy oversees IBV editorial, design, digital experience, and user engagement. Joining Cindy is Anthony Marshall, who is IBV's Senior Research Director of Thought Leadership. Anthony leads a global team of 60 technology and industry experts who carry out IBV's thought leadership research agenda. We first caught up with Cindy and Anthony at our Profiting from Thought Leadership conference in November of 2022. He had recently completed a study on the business value of thought leadership. This study surfaced some truly eye-opening findings on thought leadership's outsized returns on investment in the IT space. In addition to the IBV study and an upcoming book that Cindy and Anthony will publish in 2024 on the topic, we'll also discuss the data-driven empiricism that is at the core of IBV's work and how thought leadership has changed over the last two decades. We'll also look at the rationale behind IBV's foray into co-branded thought leadership with major technology players such as SAP, the future of thought leadership in the age of generative AI, and much more. Cindy and Anthony, thanks for joining us today on Everything Thought Leadership. Pleasure to be here. Great to be here. Thank you. So let's get started with a little discussion about the IBV mission. IBV has been around for 20 plus years. How has the agenda changed over time beyond just the accelerated progression of technology and business cycles? Anthony, you want to start with that? Sure, I'd be happy to. So uh, as you say, IBV has been around just a little over 20 years now. Um, But I think in one form or another, probably longer than that, it's just that the formal entity has been around for 20 years. I think IBM has had a commitment for longer than I've been alive, I suspect, to really trying to improve knowledge and understanding and the world in general. I think that's a very important part of the IBM mission, improving the world through technology. And so I think thought leadership dovetails that into that very directly. IBM has has been committed for years to investing in thought leadership, not just for clients, but you know, everything that we produce is available to everyone in the world at no cost. And you know, we do an enormous amount of proprietary surveying, which, which we analyze and, and make available in terms of really trying to get a better sense of how technology changes business imperatives, changes the world. And so that underlying mission, I don't think has changed. Certainly, as you mentioned, technology has changed. The, the level of sophistication has certainly changed over the years. And I think the level of alignment, I'm sure Cindy's going to talk a lot more about this, the level of alignment between what we do in the IBV and the business imperatives of the IBM organization have become much more tightly aligned. Yeah. Well, Cindy, why don't you dive into that? That's an interesting uh, point. Yeah. I, uh, everything Anthony said is absolutely true. I would add that um, the one thing that hasn't changed, Alan, is is the importance of thought leadership 
as really distinctive and evidence-based intelligence that gives leaders the insights they need to make better business decisions. That hasn't changed. And I don't think it will change. I know we're going to talk about generative AI in a bit, but um, I don't think anything is going to change the importance of thought leadership as serving that function for business leaders. As Anthony said, though, I think the alignment between the work that the IBV does and the strategic direction of the IBM organization has gotten much tighter over time. And we really do focus on thought leadership that helps those business executives make better decisions relative to technology, business, and society. We think we sit sort of at that kind of confluence between or among those three things. Um, and that's really how we focused our, our thought leadership portfolio over time. I mean, in these times where things are changing very quickly, you allude to generative AI, a lot of chaos out in the world, uh, geopolitically speaking and otherwise, you would think that thought leadership today would be more important than ever before, right? So what are you guys trying to do differently to maintain its importance and to be able to make sure you're achieving the, the goals that have been set for IBV? I'll, I'll just start, Anthony, you jump in. I think, again, I'll fall back on our history. I think less is changing and more is staying the same in that the IBV has always been known for data-oriented, authoritative, credible thought leadership that's backed by research. And the research that we do has, if anything, just gotten more rigorous over time. And Anthony, I'll let, I'll let you speak a little bit more about that. But that, that I would say is what we base our thought leadership practice on. Yeah, I think we're in a, at a time where really has unprecedented levels of instability and uncertainty, but we're often in times of, of that. Here right now, it's sort of global terrible acts of terrorism, all, all, all the rest of the stuff that's happening right now, clearly. Back in 2008, it was, it was global financial meltdown that was having a profound impact. Eight years before that, we were in dot-com crash and and sort of the a turning point of technology. And so there periodically we're always in these cycles. And the and the consistent theme of thought leadership is that is that it needs to address you know whatever is happening in the world right now, but but actually stay ahead of it. And so it's very easy to sort of think, okay, what's happening in the headlines? You know, what do I need to address today? You know, that's but that's what the media is for. That's what the press does. Part of our role is to be some years ahead. So the work that we're doing in quantum technologies and the, and the impact of quantum technology on security and on business and, and, and the like, you know, is, is, a, is a very clear example of that. And it's not manifesting in demonstrable ways that is having an immediate impact on business right now, but it will very, very soon. And so organizations need to get ahead of that curve because if they don't, others will either nefarious actors or competitors or both. And so part of our job is to is, is, is to stay ahead of whatever is happening in the world and make sure that we're sort of standing there in order to help people understand that clearly, address that now. No, absolutely. I mean, shining a light in terms of where things are heading and helping your followers, the people who depend on your thought leadership, have a sense of how to prepare and to be uh, positioned properly to take advantage of the opportunities and to guard against the challenges. Yes, that's, that's very clear and an important role that you play. But how do you pick the topics and retain your deep dive focus and maintain this fact-driven approach in a world, sadly, where sometimes facts are optional? That's exactly it. You know, Anthony talked about staying ahead and the media and, you know, other content producers 
in including individuals because everybody's a content producer now, right? Influencers of all, of all sorts. Um, there are a lot of opinions out there. There are, there are a lot of papers written on nothing but just I think or my chat uh, chatbot told me or I did a Google search or I read an article. And I think the difference with the IBV is really that data and the outside in perspective that we get by interviewing 60 plus thousand executives uh, every year. And you just don't get that kind of business insight, that kind of, you know, world insight by not talking to people who are who are living it, who are experiencing the business challenges, who are trying to work their way through the latest crisis or disruption. And, and that's where I think thought leadership, the importance of thought leadership is really heightened because when there's so much content out there, when there's so much information to sift through, business executives are really looking for something they can rely on. And the IBV's thought leadership is that kind of content. That's very true. And you made a point that so I always think of, whereas uh, everybody's entitled to their opinions, but the facts are the facts. But Anthony, in these uh, fast-paced times where everybody's a rush to judgment, how do you maintain your agenda? How do you maintain the rigor? How do you maintain the quality behind what you do? Because people are looking for quick answers, sadly. Right. So that's just before I get there. So you're talking about people looking for quick answers. That's not what our research really has found when we actually survey users of thought leadership, because what they really want is they want trusted thought leadership. And so there is a premium on trust. And we know, you know from, our, from our data that a typical executive, typical CEO consumes thought leadership for at least two hours a week. It's, it's actually, we've actually seen that increasing over the last couple of years to three hours a week. And we, we're, we're seeing that a typical executive only consumes thought leadership from five organizations. And part of the reason why they consume thought leadership from one of those five organizations, because they trust them. And so there is a massive trust premium. So if you actually look from an individual organization producing thought leadership, if they are trusted, the likelihood that they're going to be one of those five organizations increases by more than 100%. And so it is this level of trust. And to Cindy's point about the proprietary data that we, we invest in and, and, and the facts that we rely upon the, and, the, and the rigorous analysis that we conduct, that is part of building that trust. Sure, brand is there, important. You know, we're, we're very fortunate in some ways to have this legacy of the IBM brand because we know that we are in the top two most trusted thought leadership providers in the world, right? And so we, we are lucky to have that. But you know, the way that we sustain that is, is because of this consistency, this transparency, and, and this reliability that allows that trust to be there. So when people see our analysis and, and we're, we're drawing conclusions, they actually trust that what we're saying is true and not just some marketing ploy or manipulation. You know, they, they actually trust that the facts are the facts. Right, right. So you're talking a little bit about the business value of thought leadership study that you guys conducted. I believe it was uh, last year, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the findings. One of the things I was going to ask you in, in relationship to your topics is that you guys have a very broad agenda. You cover a lot of things, but how do you dive deeply and make sure you've got something that's ownable, that you've got a unique perspective on, that is something where you can really offer prescriptions to help people not only know what's going on here and now, what's coming down the pike and how to prepare for it? Yeah, I, th I think one of the ways we do that is is to 
kind of rely on the reputation that we've built over the last two plus decades. For example, the over the course of the last 16 or 18 weeks, the IBV has produced a new report on generative AI, a CEO's guide to generative AI every two weeks. That's unheard of, right? In in the world of thought leadership. Um, and part of that is because we do regular pulsing research with these executives, with our, our research partner with whom we've built this relationship and this trust and this credibility. And so we have the authority, we have the permission to be able to do things like that. And so, you know, we've we've done research with somewhere around 6,000 uh, CEOs and other executives over the course of the last, you know, five months, come out with these CEOs guides reports every two weeks that offer three things an executive needs to know and three th- things an executive needs to do. So, you know, very quick, very easy to consume, very understandable and very timely. Also built on that, that platform, that foundation of credibility and trust that Anthony was talking about a moment ago. Yeah, no, absolutely. You you can't get away from the fact that credibility and trust are the foundation of what we do as a profession. And it's very, very important. And I would assume that uh, when you guys are looking at your agenda and coming up with topics and researching them, it's done with a very pure educational lens. You're not looking to, in essence, to push an IBM point of view or perspective or even product, other than the fact that you're smart people, you've studied the problem, and you've got some ideas on how to solve for it. Would would that be a a correct assumption? So so yes, but, and the but is that we research principally around technology and the impact of technology on business. We certainly have other programs. Our diversity program, very important to us. Our program through COVID that covered things like loneliness and mental health was entirely appropriate to do during that period. Not to say that those 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 challenges are not with us anymore, but they were incredibly intense during during COVID, and and, and it was very important that we we have a voice in that. But really, our research is around technology, and and IBM is a technology company, and so there's no surprise that much of our research is around cloud, hybrid cloud, hybrid technologies, and transformation, and generative AI, and quantum computing, and all of these things, and so. They are the focal areas of of our research principally. And so you could argue that we're researching things that are really important to IBM. Of course we are, right? Our consultants and our our sales teams and our engagement teams want to have conversations with clients about those things, right? But what sort of conversation are you going to have with clients with, with those things? We need as an organization and we need as IBV to produce content that is that is groundbreaking, fresh, unbiased and really compelling. Otherwise, we're not going to get that mind share. CEOs, other executives are really clever people. We need to stay ahead and give them something they haven't really seen before or, or ideas they haven't really thought about before or implications that they haven't really considered before. And that's part of our role in sort of staying ahead to give them that fresh content, that fresh insight that is genuinely new and provocative and useful. And that's part of the role. Right. Alan, could I just add? Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case. And and what I would add is Anthony mentioned that there's a trust premium for thought leadership producers who are trusted. There's also an independence premium. And this comes from the research that I know we're going to talk about in a bit. But it's important to Anthony's point, we, we research technology. I mentioned we sit at the intersection of technology, business, and society. Um, that's our sweet spot. However, if we were out pitching product through our thought leadership, um, that wouldn't work. 
And so what we see in our research, our thought leadership research in particular, is that there is an independence premium. So organizations that are seen as independent or at an arm's length from the commercial activities of the organization, from the commercial enterprise, have a premium of somewhere around 140%, 130, 140% over organizations that are seen as more commercial. So there, there's a definite reason for us to focus on IBM's strengths, right? The foundation of IBM's business, um, but to stay at that arm's length from an actual product approach or a, a pitch of any kind. Yeah, I mean, as Anthony said, if it's blatantly obvious that you're trying to pitch your own products, uh, these are smart people out there. They're going to see right through that. No, no doubt about that. Why don't we talk a little bit about the CEO study? For years, that was the marquee study. Everybody always was hungrily awaiting that study. Can you talk a little bit about how your research there has evolved over time? And we can talk a little bit thereafter about your overall C-suite research report agenda and, and how you've kind of consolidated and expanded it. I mean, it's a very fascinating approach that you guys have taken. So, Cindy, why don't I talk about the history of the CEO, and then maybe you segue to broadening it out a bit. So I actually joined the IBB initially in 2011 to, to run the 2012 CEO study, which was around leading, leading through connections. Collaboration and stuff was sort of obvious, but not obvious at the same time. You know, this theme of being obvious and not obvious at the same time is pretty, pretty much a common one with the CEO. So all of the topics that we've covered over the years, whether it's innovation or economic crisis, which was you know, what we were talking about you know, around uh, 2008, or globally integrated enterprise, or uh, sort of profound connectivity, or open innovation, or, or transformational sustainability, which was the theme last year, or generative AI and decision making, which was the theme this year. You could say, you know, they're obvious topics, but it's how you deal with them and drawing out unobvious implications that chief executives and others can play upon. So the CEO study, as you, as you say, has been around since 2004. So one of the first major programs of, of, of the IBV, and it relies on sentiment of CEOs. So we survey, nowadays we survey somewhere between two and a half and 3,000 CEOs every time we do a CEO study. These are big, expensive surveys and they're deep surveys. And, uh, you know, we need to start planning ahead pretty much a year or more ahead. And so right now we're actually fielding the, the survey instrument for next year's CEO study. So we're, we're, we're that far ahead. And if something happens between now and then, we need to pivot. And we had to do that with, with generative AI, for example, you know, basically change things around. It is a, it is a marquee study. It's always topical, but again, you know, it's always futuristic in the way that we approach very topical uh, content. So do you want to pick up from there? Sure. I think one of the one of the things that's evolved in the C-suite series itself has been our ability to focus more on, let's call them emerging or maybe um, adjacent C-suite roles. We, you know, we've always surveyed, as Anthony mentioned, CEOs and, and CIOs and COOs and all the major C-suite roles. But uh, recently, we've expanded into really looking at the impact of roles like chief supply chain officer, CSCO. During COVID, before COVID, nobody talked about supply chain over dinner or standing in the you know, driveway. Uh, during COVID, as soon as, as soon as we ran into supply chain issues, everybody was talking about supply chain. So. CSCO suddenly became a really important part of the C-suite conversation. 
And we were able to do research. Um, we have what's called a, a group of thinkers in our think circle that we get together and talk about issues in, in the, the supply chain area. Chief sustainability officer uh, also is one of those kind of adjacent roles that we've now started focusing on and have a think circle on. And so we have access to those senior leaders within an organization that maybe haven't been considered as directly as part of C-suite thought leadership uh, in the past. And that's one of the kind of exciting things I think about the evolution of our C-suite series is that we are starting to look at some of these um, emerging or adjacent C-suite roles. You know, one of the things I was thinking about in terms of the mechanics of how you guys do this, ultimately you have trust and credibility, no doubt about that. But C-suite executives, hard for them to give up time many cases across the board, they're over a survey. There's just a saturation of surveys going on out there. How do you deal with that? How do you make sure you get what you need from a research perspective so that you've got the right you know, quotas and the, the right sectors covered globally so that you can really have something that is going to really back what your hypothesis is? So every, every, every survey is different. And so we probably conduct, if we if we added together our large surveys and our pulse surveys, we probably conduct about 30 to 40 pretty substantial surveys every year. So we're 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 very good at it. And we we have demographics each time we 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 run a survey. Surveys are not cheap, they cost a lot of money. In order to get high quality respondents, it takes, you know, it it takes time, it takes money, it takes professionalism. And although it's double blind, you know, the organizations that we 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 work with. And, and, you know, basically, I would say have a reputation for conducting good surveys. And so we're probably advantaged in that way. So, you know, again, the double blind is always there. And so the respondents don't know that we're involved, but they, they probably have experience at knowing an expectation that the survey is of a high quality, right? And so when I, when I talk about that sort of narratively, as with a study, a survey has a narrative, and so if there is a logic to it, if there's, if there's, we all have done surveys in our lives, there is a very significant difference between doing a survey that's badly designed and a survey that's really, really well designed. And doing a survey that's really well designed is almost a pleasure because you're actually learning things because of the progression of the survey. The survey is actually taking you somewhere. And it's almost like reading the study itself. A well-designed survey is mapping to the study that you're trying to write and testing a series of hypotheses. And so doing the survey actually brings you in that narrative as well. And so doing a really good survey is taking an executive on that journey. In terms of demographics, we're very clear about, you know, where, which industries we want to survey against, which countries we want to survey against, what size organizations we want to survey against, what role we want to survey against. And so we have very specific demographics, all of which cost more money. And so, but uh, it's better to have high quality data that is more expensive than low quality data that is cheaper. No doubt about that. So why don't we segue over to your uh, study on the business value of thought leadership. We've alluded to it a little bit early on in this conversation, but I was wondering, your study found that uh, thought leadership's return on investment was about 156%, which was 16 to 17 times greater than the typical marketing campaign. Can you walk us through your math and show us how you got there? I'll walk you through the process. It's a, it's a little bit complex. It, you will be able to see all of the calculations and get a little bit of a calculator when, when the book comes out that will highlight this research uh, later in the year. So 
generally to calculate ROI, um, you need just two things. And it sounds very simple. You need the income that you get and you need the expense that you or the investment that you make. So from a thought leadership perspective on the income side, you need to understand what the income is that you achieve as a result of the consumption of thought leadership. That's not so easy. And that's why we did the research to generate data, to, to deliver data that would help us calculate, make that calculation. The investment is going to change within each organization. Every organization knows how much they spend, right? So we'll focus on the, on the income piece. So it's got basically five, six, seven, eight, depending on how you count, parameters that you need to look at. You need to understand the total spend in a typical client, in a typical person that your organization works with that results from consuming thought leadership. And that breaks down into basically three things. One is the total spend in an organization that's derived directly, that's directly uh, attributable to thought leadership. And we know what that number is based on the research that we've done. So there's now data to help all CMOs, all thought leadership producers understand what that direct uh, consumption number is. The second thing is to understand how much spend is driven by thought leadership indirectly. And that's a common you know, category of spend within an organization. And then once you understand that influence spend, you have to calculate how much is realizable by one organization. Anthony mentioned that we know from our research, executives typically consume thought leadership from five organizations. So you get a 20% realizable number there, right? So again, all of this is data driven from the research, from the survey that we've conducted um, for the first time that we know of from a calculation, uh, calculating the ROI of thought leadership perspective. So you get not necessarily an easy calculation, but it, but it does come from research and we have that available. Then you need to understand the number of clients you have in your portfolio, right? Because if you have the spend for one client, you need to multiply it by the number of uh, all the clients. You need to understand your mind share, how much, how much is being consumed from you versus your competitors. You need to understand your reach. How far are you getting in the organization? How many executives are you reaching? How, many, how much of your client base are you reaching? And then you need to understand your profit margin if you're going to use that to calculate your ROI. So... We know, based on history and conversations with our, our colleagues, that many of our colleagues don't have this information from within their own organization. It's not easy to get unless you have the capabilities that Anthony has been talking about all along from a research perspective, like what the IVV has. So we were lucky enough to be able to turn that research lens on the practice of thought leadership, gather the information that we needed to be able to calculate this data-driven ROI. And that's how we get to the 156% uh, ROI um, for thought leadership in a typical $29 billion organization. Anthony, anything you want to add to that? I have some questions that I want to tag on, but let me give you a, a shot here if there's something you want to embellish with. I don't think I could possibly add to that. What I will say, because you, know, you always say, I couldn't say anything, but then I'm going to say something. Uh, Cindy's got some fantastic comparisons in terms of our you know, marketing, return on investment on marketing which we got from secondary sources, I think, you know, what, what it was, 8%, nine, mm -hmm. from a typical marketing program. And so you compare, you know, 156% to 9%. And sure, there might be marketing programs that are far more effective than that, but that's what, that's what the literature says on average. And the return on investment from thought leadership is phenomenal. 
I mean, just amazing. You know, if I had that return on investment from my retirement funds, I would be retired already, right? It is a huge opportunity. And that's why I think we're seeing the the interest in thought leadership that we're seeing right now, not just from our traditional consulting organizations, but across the board, whether they're technology companies or staffing companies or architectural companies or engineering businesses. You know, it's it's really huge, the interest that that is, that is around, around thought leadership. And it's because of these the, at least people sensing that this is the 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 potential from investments in thought leadership. You you touched on some of the more interesting findings that execs consume two hours. You say now it's almost three hours of thought leadership weekly, and the more independent and rigorous the thought leadership is, the more influence it will have. You know, something that I I found in the research: the average executive consumes thought leadership from five organizations and uses thought leadership to inform purchase decisions. We did a, a similar kind of study. Uh, we found very similar kind of, of things. Was there anything that was really thought-provoking that you didn't expect to find, or was there things that just reinforced your thinking on the topic of return on investment and thought leadership? Because as we all know, this has been something that people have been trying to figure out for some time. With all things marketing-related, return on investment is, is, is something that's uh, aspirational. It's a little squishy, and you guys have really solved for it. So can you tell us anything that's... Uh, remarkable that you found here that you didn't expect. Well, I think I think anytime you you find the holy grail, it's um it's remarkable and and unexpected. You know, when we went into this, it one of our objectives was to be able to calculate a research derived ROI. We honestly we weren't sure we'd be able to do it. We weren't sure we'd get there. And so I think the fact that we were able to use the data from our surveys, you know, our own experience, our own, you know, organization's experience, and really calculate an ROI that we can stand behind and that this this industry, this practice can stand behind, I think is just, it's really gratifying. I mean, it's, it, I wish I'd had it 25 years ago when I was starting my career, right? Um, I'm just so glad that we're, we were able to create it and calculate it and, and make it reliable and authoritative um, and believable you know, for the people who are coming up behind us. I think it's going to be an immense tool, an incredible tool for them to justify the work that they do and to position thought leadership in the in the real place that it should be, which is, you know, the foundation of any any kind of promotion or marketing or external brand building program because of the return. The return is so high. Many of IBV's findings on the business value of thought leadership jive with the results of our 2022 study conducted with Phronesis and Rattleback and how the best B2B companies compete on thought leadership. We found that B2B customers really value thought leadership when it's well-produced. 68% of the 5,800 plus B2B business leaders who answered our omnibus questions on thought leadership's importance said it is very or extremely important for addressing pressing challenges. 61% said thought leadership has been of high or extremely high value in choosing business partners over the previous five years. And where and when does thought leadership work best? When thought leadership producers offer proof that the solution to a problem actually worked. This means presenting data and compelling customer stories. In fact, evidence was ranked first by both thought leadership consumers and producers who we surveyed, who was more highly valued than other content attributes such as depth, feasibility, novelty, relevance, clarity, coherence, illumination, and rigor. And those attributes are also very important. Producing high-value thought leadership content isn't easy. In fact, when it comes to extracting deep insights from research data and subject matter experts, 
IT services and tech vendors rated the challenge a 3.5 and a 3.7 respectively on a scale of 1 to 5 where 1 is not at all effective and 5 is effective. That's probably why thought leadership producers in our view struggle with research methodology, determining the best methods, quantitative and or qualitative surveys, online versus phone data collection, where and how to use secondary research, depends on what you're trying to solve for. It can be vexing, as our survey respondents told us, but we believe the right means will always make for superior ends. Do you see yourselves continuing to study this uh, issue or is it a one and done kind of uh, thing? Anthony, I, I hope we continue to study it. Yeah, I think I think so. So um, given the, you know, it's been enormously gratifying. It's taken time for us to really translate the analysis into a into a book. I think we're we're there. We've got a, a, a very robust manuscript that we're working on right now. Um, and the reason why it took a little longer is because this thing called generative AI hit the the So we were we were sort of completing this thing, which was hard enough to to sort of quantify thought leadership and really talk about how how to achieve the potentiality there. Uh, but then generative AI hit. And so we had to really think through and resurvey on the implications of of generative AI on thought leadership and incorporate that in in the manuscript as well. And so we didn't want to go out and publish something that had really important but narrow relevance, given I'm sure a lot of people are having conversations, certainly the people that we talk to are having conversations about the impact of generative AI on thought leadership. We wanted our book to incorporate that as well. And so not only have it, has it been incorporated, but we've actually done additional surveying to get more insight because that's our, that's our approach, that's our philosophy. Uh, and so now we sort of cover both of those elements. So hope, hopefully we've got a very contemporary forward-looking piece of analysis, a, a piece of work that, that not only help producers of thought leadership defend and define what they do and how they do it, make the business case, um, but also help them sort of conceptualize going forward how to how to realize operationally thought leadership within within a world where generative AI is going to be ever more important. Without giving away too much, can you tease out what some of your findings are in terms of the role the impact generative AI will have on the thought leadership craft? So it's early. It's early days. And we say we find ourselves saying this a lot, um, you know, that that it's early and and I think we'll learn a lot more as we go. But one of the most interesting things I think that we learned, well, th the one that Anthony already mentioned, which was we're finding that executives spend an extra hour. So they, you know, they've increased the amount of time that they spend with thought leadership. I think maybe not entirely related to generative AI, but related to this sort of citizen thought leadership, if that's uh, what we want to call it, with the, you know there being so much information out there that they're spending more time with the organizations that they trust. So I think that was an interesting finding. I think the the way that executives consider thought leadership that's produced using generative AI points to the increasing importance of uh, proprietary data. I think we're seeing, we were seeing, and Anthony, you're going to have to explain this a little bit better than I can, but we were seeing some conflicting data, I guess, come through on executives maybe expecting thought leadership produced by generative AI to be more trustworthy than that generated or mainly generated by humans. And so I think there will be need to be a little bit more work done on that. Counterintuitive, absolutely. Yeah. And and we, you know, we speculate on on why that might be in terms of, you know, there being an early impression that generative AI was much more reliable than it's turned out to be, you know, kind of pre-hallucinations and a real understanding that generative AI is really only reflecting what it's been trained on. 
So I'm I'm anticipating that that's going to change in our next look at the research. But Anthony, why don't you why don't you dig into that a little bit? Sure. So as as Cindy mentioned, you know that was one of the early findings, but I think that really reflects a misunderstanding of how generative AI works and the importance of the corpus of data. So people thought, I think generative AI was like a magic wand. You know, I go, I touch it with generative AI, suddenly it solves all my problems. It brings creativity that I haven't been able to have. And it, you know, it's this wonderful thing that can do things. It's not, right? It's a wonderful tool that will evolve and become more and more useful, more and more accurate, more and more embedded in processes. Why do we know that? Because we're doing thought leadership on it. Because part of the IBM business is around process design, process re-engineering and BPO and all of that stuff. So we're looking at how to incorporate generative AI into a whole range of business processes. And we're doing that right now. Thought leadership is a business process, right? And we're, we're looking at how to incorporate. Initially, I think the executives that were surveyed were you know, really bought in because the understanding simply wasn't there, even in the media, of, of how generative AI actually works with how a foundation model actually, the corpus of data is important. When you've had companies scraping the internet on publicly available data, it was easy to believe that all required data was in there. It simply wasn't. None of our data, apart from our publicly available studies, uh, would have been incorporated in that public corpus. The thing that we rely on is new data and proprietary data that no one has access to. It's in our systems, right? And so no generative AI, apart from a generative AI that we have that is proprietary, has access to that data. And so what we believe is that uh, because of the, the likelihood that the, the overall amount of thought leadership, what people are calling thought leadership, will expand, it's likely that this trust premium, this premium on, on, on who am I going to rely upon to provide really valuable forward-looking content is going to grow even more important. And so the importance of proprietary data, proprietary analysis will become even greater. And it wouldn't surprise me that the number of thought leadership producers that are consumed is going to actually decrease for a typical executives from five to something even lower than that. And so how do you, how do you become one of those organizations? How do you become one of those four or three organizations that executives really rely upon? They might be spending more time reading it, but they're really they're going to be reading it from fewer organizations and they're the organizations that are going to be trusted. It's trust and quality. Absolutely right. Yeah. One last question on the book. When will we see it? And do you have a publisher already? You'll see it later, uh, later next year. And we are in conversations on on a publisher. Yeah, there's some we're in conversations with a couple of different organizations. And we're expecting some big news that is confidential at this point. And it's extraordinarily exciting. Alan, even you would find it exciting. Oh, my goodness. Confident. And uh, But we can't talk about it right now. But well, Please uh, keep us in the loop. We'd absolutely. Well, if you trust our thought leadership, you can trust what we're saying right now. Absolutely. That makes sense. Why don't we switch gears and go back to kind of mechanics? This is something we had talked about uh, when we spoke a few months ago about the fact that uh, you guys are now embarking on some uh, jointly branded thought leadership with companies like SAP and, and Amazon Web Services. Can you just talk a little bit about the motivation, how the partnerships work, and can you share some early results on how it's going? Yeah, maybe I can just jump in. So this was uh, you know, basically IBM has supported and been a, a, an early adopter of open environments, open innovation. Uh, open data source. Sharing, open source, all of this kind of stuff. 
even in the last few days with the um, announcements around open AI and all this kind of stuff, there's this historical commitment um, to openness and ecosystem. That being said, ecosystem in the last couple of years has become even more important from a business context for the IBM organization. And to one of your earlier questions about how do we decide what content to produce and how we how to produce it, we, we were asked by our leadership to go forth and with the ecosystem as defined, the, the, the organizations that you identified and some others like Salesforce and Adobe and, and others to basically start collaborating with them, to be the tip of the spear and to build trust through uh, co-branding thought leadership. And so we were able to do that successfully, even when other organizations have thought leadership capabilities you know, the, the proficiency and the experience that we bring is, is pretty, pretty intense. And so we were able to go to partner organizations to say, we want to work with you. We want to co-brand with you. What do you want to work on? And then get that alignment between what's important to them, what's important to the IBM organization and focus on those areas. And it's been enormously successful. I think in the last 12 months, we've published 18 studies with partner organizations co-branded pretty much from zero years ago. And so that's that's going to expand even further. The quality of thought leadership that we produce with these, these partner organizations is very high. The trust that we've built is very substantial. And I think it's just you know the beginning of a more and more successful co-branding strategy that we have. Cindy, anything you want to add to that? I have a couple of more questions, but... No, nope, let's keep going. Okay. So when I think about uh, doing co-branded thought leadership, and I've, I've done it in my past as well, a division of labor is very important. It's it's sometimes very difficult, even within an organization, to be able to produce thought leadership by committee. You know, you've got you've got egos, you've got vested interests, you've got people who think they're smarter than others and whatnot. Can you talk a little bit about how you work with these third parties and and how you come up with a plan that is good for all? Yeah, I think it's um it's relatively simple. We we have a tried and true process for building thought leadership. The theme, I guess, of this conversation is trust, you know, rigor, authority, reliability. And because we have that reputation as the IBV and as the producers of thought leadership, I think it's been maybe easier, maybe not. I mean, it's never, it's never, as you said, easy to produce anything by committee, but but we have been looked to as the experts. So we take the same process that we would have used internally and apply it, you know, from a project point of view to the partner work as well. We have a research lead who kind of serves as the as the point for IBM. We have editorial leads who create the the, the content and then promotions folks who do that. So our planning process is is very, like I said, tried and true. It's it works. And the only thing that is variable within the organization partner organizations is kind of the approval process. And that really sits in in their organization. We agree on timelines at the beginning. And I think with maybe the exception of one report, we've not missed a launch date at all. So I think the the process and the history and the rigor that the IB that the IBV uses to produce our own works to create partner and co-branded work as well. How do you measure success other than quantifying how many reports you're able to put out and work with your partners effectively? What measures do you apply to show that this is really paying off, not just for you guys, but for your partners in that ecosystem that you just discussed? They want to work with us again. We want to work with them again. Yeah. And and also, you know, we 
Sydney, in your organization, you've got a whole bunch of metrics, consumption metrics, but but also, you know, is the study being used as a strategic vehicle for our partner organization? And so when we released our study on sustainability with SAP, for example, it was profiled at Sapphire, which is the big annual event for SAP. And that was testament to the to the fact that it is seen as very, very important strategically for the SAP organization. And that, you know, it's we know it's important for us because we've been asked to do it and we're doing it and it's promoted by IBM. But the fact that it's leveraged as as a as a key vehicle for communication with our partners' clients, that is an enormous sign of success. That's testimony to its impact, that's for sure. We talked a lot about generative AI, but what other tools do you see coming down the pike that are going to change the thought leadership landscape over time, not just in tech and tech services, but across the board? Is there anything out there that you're seeing that people are using, gravitating towards, feel comfortable doing from a research, from a writing, from a production perspective that the next big thing, so to speak? Yeah, I think I think it's generative. It's all generative AI oriented that mm-hmm. we're seeing. Um, you know, there are things that that we're starting to hear being used, like things like synthetic data. So not actually doing research, but taking the results of previous research and creating synthetic data. So kind of fake data. We'll we'll see we'll see where it gets to. I think there's there's all kinds of interest in and experimenting around you know content development using generative AI. So I, I think there's plenty of of innovation and interesting developments on the thought leadership front with generative AI. I haven't really heard people talking about much other kind of anything else that's on the horizon. Anthony, have you? Uh, not that I can talk about because this is part of our strategic differentiation. So, so yes, we have a few very powerful approaches that the technology is catching up on. Cindy, what about in marketing or dissemination of your thought leadership? Anything that you see IBV doing differently over time? Well, I think that the the biggest, you know, again, generative AI news, uh, which is top of mind for everyone, is hyper-personalization. So from a marketing perspective, I think, you know, the more that we can get content to readers, to consumers, to the executives who need it on the topics that they need when they need it, Marketers talk about that all the time, right? Getting it to your audience um, at the right time in the right way. I think now the technology, to Anthony's point, is is catching up and we are going to be able to do lots more with respect to hyper-personalization, you know, meaning getting you, Alan, the content that you, Alan, need when you need it um, versus just people like Alan, which is kind of where we are today. It's, it's beyond just going to your website and uh, filling out a form and saying, I want this personalized for me. Yeah. I appreciate your time. This has been an awesome conversation. Really thankful that you guys can share your insights with us and our audience. And I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Hopefully, once the book is out, we can talk a little bit more about what's there and what the future for thought leadership is. So thanks both for joining us on Everything Thought Leadership. Thanks, Alan. Thank you, Alan. Great, great conversation. In its 20 plus years, the IBM Institute for Business Value has built a trusted foundation of data-informed thought leadership that helps business leaders to understand the world around them and to make better decisions. As today's conversation with Cindy and Anthony revealed, staying topically relevant, focusing on quality of research data and narrative, 
and anticipating technology power change in business and society remain at the center of IBV's thought leadership efforts. Remaining true to that mission is how IBV is extending its reputation as an authoritative and reliable source of insights and foresights that help business leaders make sense of today's challenges and prepare for whatever awaits them. But staying at the top of its game takes a lot of time, money, and commitment to thought leadership excellence. This, of course, starts with a great study methodology and having research panels with the right demographic characteristics to generate results that help prove or disprove a hypothesis or a set of hypotheses. Achieving great thought leadership results isn't easy in the B2B world, which is super saturated with surveys. As Anthony said, if designed right, a survey instrument can and should be a learning journey for the survey taker as they progress through the questionnaire. And for the survey instrument creator, it generates the raw material for a report narrative. When a survey instrument is done right, both sides win. You know, I never thought of it that way. But as Anthony said, the goal for thought leadership producers is to create escape philosophy to emerge as one of the top three or four organizations that targeted executives really trust. That in our view comes from publishing original breakthrough ideas backed by supporting facts and revealing client stories that illuminate the best ways to solve the market's most pressing problems. And as IBV's research findings reveal, thought leadership remains the best way to convey influence and generate revenue at scale compared with other marketing initiatives. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Everything Thought Leadership. We look forward to seeing you here again soon. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you'd left a like and share this episode with your colleagues. Everything Thought Leadership is a video and podcast series from Bidet TLP for thought leaders and thought leadership professionals, the people who help experts get recognized as thought leaders. You can find out more about Bidet TLP at bidettlp.com.